Medieval. On today's podcast, we have the author and historian and a good friend, Matthew Lewis, who has a particular interest in the medieval period. He's renowned for his research on Richard III. I would say he's one of the go-to people for Richard III these days and is chairman of the Richard III Society. The host of the popular podcast, Gone Medieval, Matthew has also written about Henry III, Stephen and Matilda, Richard, Duke of York, and the medieval power couple, Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine. And rather than discussing Richard III, which I'm sure Matthew thoroughly enjoys, but gets a lot of, today we're going to talk about Henry and Eleanor, the founders of the Plantagenet dynasty, and probably the most famous medieval couple. So welcome, Matt. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Henry and Eleanor, what attracts people to their story? I just think it's got a little bit of everything. You know, it's high politics that spans Western Europe. There, There's so many wars. I mean, Henry has this incredible ability to reduce castles by sieges faster than anybody imagines is possible. So he's achieving things that nobody thinks is, is achievable in his age. It's the building of empire. There is intrigue at, at every turn. There are plots and, and games going on, particularly with the Capetian kings in Paris as their reigns go on. Um, so it's this, these elements of the political, but also the personal, because this is all family drama as well. This is all their personal relationships. This is watching a married couple play out their relationship in, in the public eye but also getting to watch them fall out spectacularly with their sons and everything else as well. I mean, it's as close as I think you can get to a medieval version of EastEnders or something. You know, it's that looking in through the window and seeing the inner workings of a family who are, are otherwise utterly untouchable and disconnected from us. But but yet they seem so human and relevant today in the way that they interact with each other. Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking when you were saying that, I was thinking of uh, the show Succession, uh, which uh, mm. I think is is kind of that that sort of thing, isn't it? The the interrelationships between the the, the children and the father, uh, and the occasion and the, and the intervention of the mother. It's sort of got that kind of uh, internecine rivalry and interfamily rivalry. It's it's uh, yeah, very much very very attractive to the viewer, the listener, uh, the reader. I think so, because it always has that element of looking, you know, you're peering behind the curtain, aren't you? Mm. You know, the, the same with those stories like Succession and things like that. You're looking in through the, the windows of people's homes and you're seeing what goes yeah. on behind the scenes of all these huge power events that are, are being played out in public. But you get that little look at what's happening in private as well. But, and, uh, I mean, Henry, Henry was an enormously powerful man. I mean, at the time... I suppose there were others, but you can't get too much more powerful than Henry II. I mean, he spanned a large geographical area as well. Well, that's it. I mean, you know, he he's, he holds territories from, you know, the North Sea to the Pyrenees Mountains. You know, he mm. holds more of France than the King of France does. <laughs> that's why he's such a threat to them. He becomes, throughout his reign, he becomes the person that European rulers go to to try and settle their problems. He's seen as that kind of power almost above all of the other rulers of Europe he he has this connection to the the Holy Land as well so his granddad mm. had gone off to become king of Jerusalem and at one point the patriarch of Jerusalem comes over and and pretty much begs Henry to go and be king of Jerusalem for them because he's just seen as this man who can fix anything you know he can run mm. these vast territories and he does such an incredible job and he's so impressive that Jerusalem want him to go and be their king too so I think he does. He, 
even in his own lifetime, I think he's a bit of a legend even in his own lifetime. Mm. He, he's been a legend ever since, but to people around him, even to other kings, he was the person that they turned to. And, and I think one of the most striking relationships as well is you've got Louis the Seventh in France, who who's big kind of Capetian rivalry. But when Louis dies, he's succeeded by his young son, Philip, who will become Philip Augustus. And Philip really looks on Henry as a mentor and a tutor. And Henry is really, really good to Philip. So that when Philip turns on Henry, (laughs) it's a really poor repayment for the way that Henry has tried to support him on his throne, particularly at a point when Henry might have decided to try and pinch that throne for himself, but he doesn't. He supports Philip Augustus and he backs him up. And he, he kind of tutors him and, and teaches him and nurtures him and then has to watch him turn on him at the last minute. So, you know, we're back to the realms of succession and, and all of those kinds of things there where yeah. at, at that last minute, there's there's a really poor repayment for, for what Henry has done. Sharon alluded to the fact that you, you are somewhat well known for writing and talking about Richard III. So why, in terms of your sort of personal work, why did you turn to Henry and Eleanor? Exciting and interesting, though you've just told us it is, was there any other reason or was it was it just something that seemed like a, a good thing to go into? Um, I I mean, I guess people might get bored of me talking about Richard III all the time. No, surely not. <laughs> um, I wrote so I wrote a book about the anarchy and I think that was partly because I, I've always been fascinated by the Wars of the Roses. So whilst I focus on Richard III and, and stuff around the princes in the tower and whatever else, really the Wars of the Roses is the period that's always absolutely fascinated me and i've written a history of the wars of the roses i've written biography of richard duke of york richard iii things like that and so i I decided to to write a book about the anarchy simply because there's another civil war Mm. so i was quite interested to find out how different it was how similar it was the the kinds of politics and and power that was being played out Mm. a few centuries earlier before the wars of the roses so I wrote that book. I tried to write it from the points of view of both Stephen and Matilda, which I think you, t- you tend to get a book about Stephen or a book about Matilda that sort of tells their story through the anarchy. But you don't often get a story of the anarchy that looks at it from both their perspectives, because I- I'm not sure that either of them were particularly bad people or-, or even particularly good people. I don't know. I found Stephen, you know, a much nicer man than I was expecting. I liked him more than I thought I was going to. I think he's a bit of a wuss, though. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think he was an incompetent fool. No. I think he felt he falls into that category of, which which several people do through the medieval period, he falls into that category of being too nice to be a good medieval king. Yeah, that's the thing. He's a nice guy. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we ought to still view that as a failing. Mm. You know, we, we tend to still cling to this kind of really 19th century Whiggish view of our medieval history that the good kings are the ones that kill loads of people and invade everybody's territory and the bad ones are the ones that want to stay at home and look after their family and all that kind of thing where where I think today you know surely we would view that the other way around and Matilda you know was an absolutely incredible figure Mm. as well Henry II's mother so this is a woman who has had such a huge impact on Henry and when you look at Henry's life He's got such a, a powerful woman in his mother and then such a powerful woman in his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it says a lot about Henry that he's happy to be around these hugely powerful women. Uh, he doesn't feel threatened by them at all. And so so having told the story of the anarchy, it kind of felt like then I'd left Henry having taken the, the throne and, and I, he just married Eleanor of Aquitaine. And it's like, oh, this seems like a really rubbish place to leave them. Now I want to know a little bit more about them. So it was almost like this biography was a sequel to the anarchy. And I tried to approach it in, a, in the same way as the anarchy as a kind of joint biography mm. of the two of them. Because although much of their story is together, so much of it is is apart as well that it's hard to tell one story without telling the other, I think. Yes. Yeah, I like the way that works, um, that you're telling. It's not just Henry. Most biographies throughout the study of history has been about a particular person. And they, you know, all the biographies of kings mention the wives, have a chapter on the wives, but they're always sort of sidelined. So it's nice to actually see Eleanor front and centre as well as Henry. Yeah, and I think... In, the, in this couple's case in particular, it's impossible to tell one story without the other. It's impossible to understand mm. one of their characters, one of their successes 
and failures and everything else without understanding the person who was standing next to them throughout all of this and at various points they were driving each other probably holding each other back counseling each other you know they were each other's solace in moments of of grief i think and it's striking how you see that throughout their relationship so trying to tell henry's story without eleanor is almost impossible and i mean to some extent it's easier to tell eleanor's story without henry because he's he's only a relatively small part of her life Mm. whereas she is part of pretty much all of his life so it just felt like a really nice way to tell this story of kind of european politics to get the the couple that that drove it all together and to tell their story jointly you know they they lived these these moments together why not tell the story together yeah i think it works really well so eleanor Eleanor Rakuten. She's often held up as a feminist icon. You see it everywhere. Eleanor was the first feminist. But how much power did she actually wield herself? I'm not sure Eleanor would recognise herself as as any kind of feminist icon. I would... No, I don't think so. (laughs) Especially not as a first, because what she was doing was latching onto the, the dying of female power she had so many strong women in her her lineage to look back on who had ruled territories and held power that she was you know that that was a moment that was passing as the catholic church gets more and more power they necessarily think women shouldn't have any kind of authority and and it's the monks in their cloisters that are making women unsuitable for for any kind of power and authority and to some extent i think eleanor is you know, she she is the the last burning bit of sun at the sunset of, of female power being an acceptable thing across Europe for for centuries to follow. So I don't think she was the first kind of feminist icon if she was any kind of a feminist icon. And I also think she was utterly proficient at operating within the accepted norms of female power. That kind of soft power mm-hmm. that that women that queens were able and expected. To operate she knew very well how to pull all of those levers her influence over louis when she's queen of france is what turns all of louis's court against her because they're worried that i mean they the, the chroniclers frequently talk about louis being like a child obsessed with eleanor you know he's he's in love like a puppy he follows her around everywhere he does everything that she says <laughs> so clearly they think she has plenty of influence over louis they they categorize it as a bad thing but that's a queen knowing how to to use those levers of power you know she she manages to get louis involved in a war with one of his subjects to to champion her sister you know when a sister has an affair with a a married man she manages to get louis to sort of start a war off the back of that (laughs) as part of her her position in aquitaine she believes she should hold the county of toulouse that's been in dispute for a long time and she manages to get louis to take an army all the way down to toulouse to pick a fight down there for her so she's clearly very very good at doing all of that kind of thing and, th- and that's not her wielding power that's her knowing how to direct the kind of soft power that she has how to pull those levers in the right ways when she marries henry and he becomes you know count of anjou duke of normandy king of england and then duke of aquitaine in, in right of her she is frequently acting as regent across a variety of his land. She's regent in England, she's regent in Normandy, she's regent in Anjou a couple of times. And so the fact that they've got this huge dispersed set of territories means that it's difficult for Henry to manage all of that by himself. So he doesn't have to because he's got a partner and he can rely on her and she is perfectly comfortable again operating in the way that that women are expected to operate in during this period. She's representing the power of her husband. She's representing the power of a man. And she's perfectly capable of doing that. She doesn't particularly, you know, fight against that idea. She operates incredibly well within those bounds. And I think perhaps the striking thing is that when she does get power in her own right, so later on in in her relationship with Henry, she goes to Aquitaine and she's left to rule Aquitaine sort of on her own to train their son Richard who is going to be the future Duke of Aquitaine or at least that's the plan plans never work out obviously (laughs) and she does have you know power there then as 
Duchess of Aquitaine. And this is frequently seen as some distance coming into their relationship. So it's often painted as, as the time when Henry begins to take young mistresses and that he's sort of shipping Eleanor off out of the way. I would actually argue that what this is, is a great big fat thank you from Henry. This is a the, the golden handshake. This is Eleanor at the end of her child rearing years. She's provided him with endless sons and daughters. She's done a fantastic job helping him to rule all of these lands. I think Eleanor has always been fixated on Aquitaine. The, the belief that Richard is her favourite son really centres around the idea that he is the future of Aquitaine. He's going to be the next Duke of Aquitaine. That's always been her focus. She's always seemed to have wanted to go back to Aquitaine. So I think when Henry lets her go back there as Duchess with authority to rule herself, it's everything that she ever wanted. It's not, it's not a slap down from Henry. I think it's a big thank you. But this is the moment where we see her exercising power and authority in her own right. And it really doesn't go very well. She doesn't do a very good job of it. She hits all kinds of problems, rebellious vassals. She's not sure how to deal with it. And, and you know, and I think that plays into Henry and Eleanor's later relationship. But as I think she is incredibly effective when she is operating as Louis's wife, as Henry's wife within those those accepted norms when she does get power in her own right and try to step out of that she she doesn't deal particularly well with the backlash that she gets from men who who still at this point don't want to be ruled by a woman really yeah is that because they're comfortable with her representing the power of a king but they're not so comfortable with her being the source of the power it is i think and this is a period in which you know the the, the church particularly is fostering this idea that women can't wield power shouldn't be trusted with power and i'm looking at sharon and i'm really sorry because i know how awful all of this sounds when i'm saying it out loud (laughs) (laughs) no i i've just written the book on the anarchy as well so i'm like yes yes because it's empress matilda everybody hated her because she tried to wield power in her own right matilda of boulogne king stephen's wife she's perfect because although she also led an army she was doing it for stephen so she was on the right side (laughs) it's exactly that and i think eleanor just falls into this moment when she believes she can still do this stuff and and she probably could but society is just shifting away from the idea that she should be allowed to do this stuff aquitaine is an incredibly difficult place to to rule at the best of times it's kind of a really loose gathering of of counties that are held together by kind of the finest threads of loyalty you pull any of those ties too too sharply and they will snap and you've lost the whole thing and so dukes you know they're counts of Poitou the dukes of Aquitaine and they sit in Poitou in the north of Aquitaine desperately trying to manage all of these relationships and I think the fact that Eleanor is a woman gives men the idea that they have even more space to, to dissent mm. than they would if he if she was a duke mm. of Aquitaine and they make the absolute most of that they don't particularly want to be ruled by a woman if I was being fair to them I might suggest that Aquitanian independence is an incredibly important thing and female rule always brings with it this question of how are you going to put an army into the field you know as you've just mentioned Matilda of Boulogne can do it because she's doing it on Stephen's behalf Empress Matilda can't do it because women can't lead an army onto the battlefield you know if her if Matilda's half-brother Robert of Gloucester is doing it isn't he really king you know it raises all of those kinds of questions if Eleanor wants to put an army into the field she could possibly do it in Henry's name she could possibly do it in Richard's name but then is she really Duchess or is she just representing them so she tries to, to to operate in her own right but it raises all of those questions and I think Aquitaine is such a tricky place at the best of times that it's it's a, a bad time for Eleanor to be there trying to to be a woman pulling on those levers of power if that makes sense um and I, th- I think like I say I don't want to be fair to them because they're just a horrible bunch of misogynists who don't want to be ruled by a woman <laughs> but if I was being fair to them I might suggest that with an eye to Aquitanian independence they'd be thinking does this work yeah I mean it sounds as if uh, it's sort of catch-22 for Eleanor really she can't really win in that situation that she's in in terms of her personal relationship with Henry, which you touched on earlier, where did that all go wrong? Because if, if they were such great partners in the early part of the, of the reign, how did it... It's a Baldrick question, really, isn't it? How did the war start? How, how did, they, how did it, it happen that they fell out in what appears, at least, to be a very spectacular way? I think they never fall out. And I think that appearance of a spectacular falling out 
is precisely what they wanted everyone to see. And this is just my theory. So traditional history will tell us that they they have this huge fallout. So around 1173, their sons rebel against their father. And the traditional version of this story is that Eleanor kind of eggs them on. And to some extent, I you know I've always got an eye to the this is monks telling us this. Yeah. <laughs> sitting in their cloisters going something's gone horribly wrong where's the woman we can blame oh there she is it's Eleanor yeah <laughs> so I, I always take that view with a pinch of salt I'm always cautious about if I go back to think about Richard III I remember my A-level history teacher telling me you need to think about who is telling you this thing and why are they telling it you yeah what do they want you to understand and I think quite often here monks don't want to blame a king they're, they're happy to look for a woman to blame. And Eleanor gets kind of singled out for this. And so traditional history tells us that Eleanor eggs her sons on to rebel, that she then tries to go to her ex-husband in Paris to operate against her current husband, which seems like madness to me. Why would a woman do that? It doesn't make any sense at all. That she's captured en route and that then she spends kind of... Don't forget she was dressed as a man. <laughs> Of course, yeah, because she has to be unnatural at this point. So, you know, she's behaving so beyond what's acceptable for a woman that she's even wearing men's clothes and riding a horse like a man. Do you think of anything more shocking? And then she spends this, the rest of Henry II's life, so the next 15 years, in what is, is characterised as captivity, as his prisoner. Mm. So my suggestion, and again, you know, this is my interpretation of, of what happened in that period. My, my suggestion for, for these events around 1173 is that we can see Louis VII, the, the Capetian king, is beginning this game that the Capetians will play against the Angevins and then later kings of England almost indefinitely from Paris, of getting into their personal relationships. Louis is trying to insert himself between Henry and his sons mm. because he needs to break up those Angevin territories. As I said before, Henry owns more of France than the King of France does. And that is a huge threat to, to Louis on his throne in Paris. He's not that dissimilar from the Dukes of Aquitaine in that his ties of power are, are quite loose around mm. France. You know, he's, he's nominal overlord of all of these counts and, and dukes, but he has to be careful because he doesn't really have all that much actual authority. He's not like the King of England who has direct control over all of his lands and territories and, and sort of dukes and earls are his representatives. For the King of France, it's it's much more nuanced mm. than that. So he has to be careful. So the, the lands that Henry and Eleanor hold are an incredible threat to Louis. And I think his solution to this is to get between Henry and his sons. So he starts telling their oldest son, Henry the Young King, why haven't you got any power? Why didn't your dad give you some stuff? Why aren't you Duke of Normandy? Why aren't you King of England already? What's going on with all of this? And Henry the Young King is stupid enough to fall for it, but he does it with the other brothers as well. And so I think in 1173, that, that rebellion is Louis's magic beginning to work. You know, it's the, the honey that he's pouring into those boys' ears beginning to, to bear fruit for him. And I think if you tie this in with the fact that Eleanor's time in Aquitaine has not gone very well, she's had what she wanted, she's had a stab at power in Aquitaine, and it hasn't gone very well. I think that rebellion of 1173 presents an opportunity for her to get out of Aquitaine without looking like she's turning her back on it and running away. To move into a, a, a more safe, comfortable retirement in England as, as Queen of England. And also for them as a couple to take the sting out of Louis courting their sons. Louis wants a division between Henry and their sons and I think Eleanor is almost the sacrificial lamb who puts herself in the middle of that and says you know I'll, I'll take a hit here so that you can not blame our sons and that you can publicly be reconciled with them incredibly quickly because Henry is with his sons and even with other you know English and, and Norman barons he forgives them all almost immediately mm. And yet Eleanor is seen as someone who's punished for 15 years for perhaps trying to get to Paris at some point. I mean, it's so unreasonable a, a punishment that it strikes me that perhaps Eleanor said, you know, I'll just come and go and live at Old Sarum in my favourite castle in England, which doesn't seem like much of a punishment. You know, you can provide me with a, a pretty good household, loads of nice clothes and everything, which doesn't seem like much of a punishment. And you can forgive our sons and you can stop Louis's game kind of in its track. So I'm not sure that anything ever really went wrong with their relationship. And during that 15 years that's characterised as, as captivity, we still see Eleanor at family events 
with her sons. She's still at Christmas and Easter courts and things like that. She still mingles with her sons and her daughters. Yeah, and she's living with Matilda. Matilda comes to live with her, doesn't she, when she um, is exiled from Germany? Yeah, so when, when Matilda's husband, Henry the Lion, kind of falls foul of the Holy Roman Emperor and gets sent into exile, they come and live in England with, you know, Henry shacks up with his in-laws. And Matilda is, is with Eleanor. And, but she's frequently at court around their sons, which would seem a crazy thing to do if she's in prison for driving them into rebellion against their father. Mm. When Henry the Young King dies, it seems that Eleanor is not only allowed to go over to Rouen to visit his tomb, which would be, again, you know, a, a slightly strange thing for Henry to do if he's mad at her and punishing her and might blame her for Henry's death. But Henry begins to spend more and more time in Eleanor's company at this point too almost as if they are still each other's solace she is still the one that he turns to when he's grieving it's her that he wants and so I, i'm not sure that anything did go wrong i think this was you know we, we can clearly see louis tactic to break up the angevin family and the angevin lands mm -hmm. i think this is henry and eleanor's tactic in response to that and i think perhaps we we missed it that's my suggestion anyway it's not a, it's not an uncommon tactic is it in trying to weaken ruling houses to drive a wedge between father and son or brothers as we know from the wars of the roses yeah absolutely and i think what we what we don't allow is that henry and eleanor might have had their own response to that yeah that was a, a way of countering what they could see that louis was trying to do you know i'm sure that they could see it and they must have been so frustrated and annoyed and confused that their sons couldn't see it and, and fell for it over and over and over again <laughs> but that doesn't mean that they didn't have their own tactic in response to this to try and take the the sting out of what louis was doing how, how does that parting of the two how does that fit in with henry's character because i mean again my knowledge of henry is fairly superficial but i get the impression that it that he's quite a sort of passionate guy in the short term but as you said he forgives people generally quite quickly for quite for quite significant betrayals so it, are, are you basically arguing that it's more in character to see that split as a, a kind of arranged split rather than him punishing her for 15 years yeah i think so i think henry has a very short fuse you know lots of the chroniclers will talk about him being really red-faced and, yeah. and prone to outbursts of anger and all of that kind of thing and so if he knows that that's the way he behaves he, he can they can almost manufacture they could stage manage this moment in which he's like oh my god eleanor i can't believe you've betrayed <laughs> me in this terrible way off you go to your favorite castle of old serum where you'll be punished with robes and furs and all of this kind of thing and then and then it's kind of you know i imagine them parting with a with a wink at each other you know i mean the lion in winter is a, is a is such a great film to watch that dynamic between henry yeah. and eleanor and i know it's fiction but it, it's for me, I imagine that's what their relationship was was very much like, that they are absolute equals. And I think one of the striking things about Henry is that he really as I said before, you know, he's got this incredibly powerful mother, incredibly powerful wife. I don't think he has an issue with with having an equal hmm. alongside him in, in a way that a lot of other kings need their wives to be subordinate to them, to, hmm. to follow that one step behind, to be the quiet peacemaker in the corner, to play that role. I don't think Henry has an issue with Eleanor being his equal in the things that they're trying to achieve. And so I can I can perfectly imagine them stage managing this huge row about how terrible it is she's been awful to him. And then she's, you know, very gently dragged away to old serum. And, and as they part, like I say, you know, they turn back to each other and just give a little wink on the way out the door. It worked. Right. Well, you've answered my next question already. So I'm going to put a new one in um, and hopefully it's not too big a curveball for you. Henry's relationships, of course, were not just with Eleanor of Aquitaine. He's known to have had a few mistresses. The main one everyone talks about um, with relation to Eleanor is Rosamond Clifford. And there are many stories where there's um, a maze to Rosamond's quarters so that Eleanor can't find her and Eleanor stabbing Rosamond or poisoning Rosamond. I never found anything that suggested that Eleanor met Rosamond, was threatened by Rosamond. Do you think Eleanor was threatened by Henry's mistresses or she just saw it as Henry's doing Henry and it doesn't affect me? 
I mean, I th- I think it's it's widely understood that kings at this time had mistresses. Mm. You know, uh, Henry the First had what did he have? Twenty something illegitimate children. <laughs> Twenty two illegitimate children. <laughs> you know, and, and Henry the Second kind of modelled himself on his granddad Henry the First. Maybe not in this way. He didn't have that many illegitimate children. But it wasn't unusual for kings to have mistresses. And again, I think Eleanor would have understood the role that she was in. She's a king's mm-hmm. wife. Her job is to produce heirs to support him. Um, I think she does that in more effective ways uh, and more direct ways than some other queens. But particularly when she is, you know, into her mid to late forties, she's perhaps not going to have any more children with Henry. She goes off to Aquitaine to this what I what I would term as comfortable retirement. She gets that golden handshake of you know thank you very much. I'm not sure that she's too bothered that then she knows Henry is still sleeping with other women at that point. Kind of, it's not the biggest thing on her mind at that point. So the Rosamund Clifford stuff, it's like the idea that Eleanor was involved in these courts of love, you know, with her her Mm. daughters. It just didn't exist. It's not a thing. It didn't happen. The Rosamund Clifford stuff is just more kind of chivalric romance that builds up around this story that, that Rosamund is this kind of innocent mistress. Eleanor, again, she has to be this slightly vicious, nasty woman who is looking for vengeance. <laughs> and so she, you know, Henry has to construct this huge maze around this cottage for Rosamond to live in, where she becomes an effective prisoner in this cottage so that Eleanor can't get to her, but Eleanor still does get to her and manages to either stab her or poison her, or, you know, depends which version of the story you get. But I just don't think she would have featured anywhere in Eleanor's thinking. I think the only mistress that perhaps Eleanor might have been concerned about was Ida de Tosney, who was m- more noble than she might have expected Henry to have as a mistress. And so a noble woman might be more of a threat to her position than a commoner that Henry was having as a mistress. And we know William Longesby would be a son from that relationship. And that is potentially more concerning to Eleanor than someone like Rosamund Clifford, I think. But even then, there's no signal that she's particularly, you know, freaking out or disturbed by by Henry having mistresses at all. I think it comes from, it's that 19th century attitude of what a family has to be. Mm-hmm. And then it's developed in the 20th and 21st century where we have to, everybody has to be in love. <laughs> you know, and we, we see... 12th and 13th century marriages as the same as ours where they yes they've arranged marriages but they all fall, fell in love and Eleanor didn't have to fall in love with Henry it was um, a business dealing for running countries and yes they would have had affection for each other he was more her choice than Louis the Seventh was but he wasn't someone she would have necessarily chosen to marry if it wasn't for the fact that they both ruled countries so for her she's done her duty in producing the children in supporting Henry and she probably, she may well have just seen it as, actually, this is my reward. You know, Henry's looking elsewhere. I can just be me, have a bit of me time and get on with my life. Yeah, I mean, you know, to some extent, was she grateful that someone else was taking that, that pressure off her, you know? <laughs> and I mean, I I would also say that Henry and Eleanor never seem to have had this kind of relationship, again, you know, it's it's tempting but dangerous to talk about love. Mm. I think what we can say is that Henry and Eleanor were a devastatingly effective couple. Mm. They were both incredibly capable people who worked very, very well together. Yeah. They may have loved each other. They may have at least, you know, cared for each other, had a degree of affection for each other after all of their years together and everything that they'd achieved in their family. But we don't necessarily need to concern ourselves with yeah. talking about love in their relationship uh, and stuff like that can be really dangerous to pick out. But yeah, you know, I think we, what we can say is that they were incredibly effective together and they, they never seem to have spent that much time in each other's company because of the amount of territory that they owned, because Eleanor was frequently having to operate as Henry's regent in various places. That was a way of them spreading their their authority. So they, they never had the kind of relationship that required them to be in each other's pockets all of the time. No. And they were apart for months, at least months at a time, sometimes years. I think, wasn't uh, their daughter Matilda about 18 months old or something? the first time she saw her father. Yeah, they, they do spend huge period because Henry is having to travel over vast distances and, and you know, run around putting out fires all over his lands with, of minor rebellions. Mm-hmm. They are apart for for prolonged periods of time. So, yeah, you know, like I say, they, they never had that kind of relationship that meant they had to be in each other's pockets 
24-7. That doesn't mean they didn't care for each other, but it, it meant that they were used to that kind of physical distance in their relationship because that's the way it had always worked. Mm. I mean, one of the things we haven't yet mentioned, the word we haven't yet mentioned on... <laughs> This is Beckett. Now, when I was at school, which I'll admit is a long time ago, it wasn't at Evan 70, but it was a long time ago. When you were presented with Henry II, it was Henry II and Beckett. That was the topic, if you like. It was the big thing. So how do you see the role of Beckett in terms of Henry the, Henry's reign and uh, their falling out and so on and, and the importance of it? How do you see it? One of the things that struck me when I was writing the book really was just how unimportant Henry probably thought Beckett was. He is an incredibly good administrator. So Henry latches onto him because he's very, very good at his job. He makes him chancellor, whatever the medieval equivalent of prime minister, you know, he's, he's running the, the functioning of government. Mm. And he's very, very good at that. Henry is, and I guess, you know, we can possibly see some parallels here with someone like Henry VIII and Cardinal Wolsey. Henry isn't very interested in the, the sparkle and the glitter of being king. Mm. He wants to wear his muddy boots and ride around, you know, attacking castles and everything else. He doesn't want to be doing paperwork and counting money and all of that sort of stuff. And so Thomas Beckett is very, very good at that kind of thing. And, you know, when Henry wants to organise a, a wedding between his son, Henry the Young King, and Louis's daughter... So a princess of France, he kind of can't be bothered to go to Paris and make this huge glitzy entrance into Paris. So he sends Thomas to do it. And and the chronicles talk about, you know, Thomas turning up with a couple of mile longs of wagons, tons of silver everywhere, barrels of beer. There's monkeys riding dogs chained to the carts and all of this kind of stuff. <laughs> and it almost backfires and has the opposite effect because everyone is like, well, if this is Henry's chancellor, crikey, imagine what he must be like. Um, but then we get accounts of, you know, Beckett will hold these lavish feasts uh, and, and sort of hold court almost on Henry's behalf. And then Henry will come in from a day's hunting, ride his horse across the middle of Beckett's great hall, hop off, jump over the table and put his mud muddy boots up on the table and, and start eating. And, you know, you can imagine Beckett, uh, head in his hand, sort of, oh, God, he's back. And so I think they have this, they work very well together from that point of view. And then Henry has this big idea when the Archbishop of Canterbury dies. As I said, Henry II models himself very much on Henry I and his measure of everything is if it's a power or a right or an authority that my granddad had, I want it. <laughs> <laughs> and Henry I had much more control over the church than Henry II did. So the, mm. the, the Pope in Rome is trying to gather a bit more power for the Catholic Church. You're getting all kinds of arguments around Europe around who can appoint bishops and archbishops and things like this. Yeah, yeah they had one in Germany, didn't they? The investiture crisis. That was the word I was looking for. Thank you. Yeah, so you've, you've got the investiture crisis going on around this time. Lots of discussion. Henry II wants the powers that his granddad Henry I has. So when the Archbishop of Canterbury dies, he sees the perfect opportunity to get his man, Thomas Beckett, in. You know, Thomas Beckett isn't even a priest. He's no interest in being in the church. Thomas you know, says to Henry, I don't want to do this. I don't want this position. And to some extent, you know, Thomas is maybe around about 40 at this point. He's not married. And this would be the end of any hope of him getting married, having any children, having a family but also of any political authority, because Henry only wants to put him there so that he can hand over control of the church and then make his own position of Archbishop of Canterbury kind of redundant. So he'd go from being the most powerful man in Henry's government to being a kind of puppet holding church services on a Sunday and, and doing whatever Henry tells him to. <laughs> and I don't think that appeals to Thomas at all. But Henry wants to go ahead with it. So Henry makes him Archbishop of Canterbury and then Thomas doesn't do what Henry wants. Henry flips out. Thomas ends up in exile. Um, and we do see Henry being quite vicious at this point anyone who is related or vaguely connected to Thomas Beckett is chased into exile as well and Henry seizes all their property so here's his temper you know in full flow and I think from that point Beckett is not really Henry's main problem or his main concern ever again Beckett becomes a, a bit of a pesky fly that, that shows up every time Henry has a peace conference with Louis Beckett will show up and go I'm still here uh, you can't all be friends while I'm still here because Henry's horrible to me and, and again I think you get Henry and Louis head in hands going oh my god it's that guy again <laughs> and i think it reaches the point where the pope is fed up of beckett louis is fed up of beckett henry is fed up of beckett and they kind of i think they they fabricate this moment when henry has his son henry the young king crowned as king of england in his lifetime you know only time it happens in in english history 
but he has it done by the Archbishop of York. And Thomas Becket is utterly outraged, as I, I think he was meant to be. And I think at this point, you know, Louis and the Pope have had enough of him. He's getting in the way of the kind of peace that they want, because again, they're, they're concerned about how do you get men to the Holy Land to fight a crusade yeah. when they're all fighting each other in Europe. And Thomas Becket is, is getting in the way of all of those efforts. So I think now Thomas is pushed to try and mm. make peace with Henry with the promise that he can you know, recrown um, Henry the Young King. And, and Louis, uh, because Louis's daughter is married to Henry the Young King and she wasn't included in that coronation, Louis is able to kind of have some faux outrage at, oh, my daughter ought to have been involved in this as well. If only Thomas Becket could do it again, he could crown them both. And so Thomas is sort of lured back to England to do this but I think he kind of sees what's going on uh, and he gets back to England immediately excommunicates everyone that supports Henry and you know barricades himself in at Canterbury and is just continuing to be obstructive but now on English soil so I, I think throughout Henry's reign although we do talk about Henry and Becket and and because we know how Beckett's story ends, and that's such a massive moment, mm. it, it kind of is allowed to dominate backwards from there. But I think if you look at what Henry's doing and how he's behaving mm. and what he's thinking, I don't think Beckett was ever his main concern, really. And do you think then the fact that Beckett was killed, and it's reported obviously by monks and the church and so on, and therefore is a very big thing. I mean, it's a very big thing anyway, because he's killed in his cathedral. But but do you think it's the reporting of it, in a sense, that has, and maybe also 19th century historians, that have kind of made it the thing about Henry's reign? Because if if you're not careful, as I said, growing up when I grew up at school and you, you studied Henry II, it was the only thing that was important in Henry II's reign. It was... Uh, it was very skewed. Yeah, it's those Victorians again, Derek. I keep saying it. I <laughs> know oh, it is. Yeah, yeah. Macaulay and Trevelyan. <laughs> I do think it's easy to exaggerate the importance of Becket, but the danger is going too far the other way because it was. You know, this is an Archbishop of Canterbury being murdered in his own cathedral. Yeah. At, at least on the suspicion that the king had ordered this to happen, it is a massive moment. But I think it is also a moment. You know, it is not something that that dominates Henry's kind of thirty odd years as king of England. Yeah. It happens. His enemies will try and use it against him. You know, the king of France and, and the barons of France are hugely outraged because it suits them mm. to say oh henry is is the devil incarnate now he's murdering archbishops mm. what a terrible terrible man let's take all his land off it <laughs> because that suits their aims and doubtless yeah. they are shocked it's a shocking thing but they will use it to their advantage too but i think what's interesting about it then is also that henry manages to turn it round to his own and again you know if we think perhaps he might have had this plan with eleanor to deal with the 1173 revolt and all of that kind of thing henry understands politics and he understands people and he understands how these things work mm. when things start to go badly for him and and he's facing these rebellions he comes back to england and what does he do he rides not to London, he rides straight to Canterbury. As soon as he gets in sight of Canterbury Cathedral, he gets off his horse, takes his shoes off, walks to Canterbury Cathedral to the point where his feet are bleeding by the time he gets there. He kneels in front of Thomas Becket's tomb, his shrine, and he, he weeps and apologises to his friend. So now he's calling on this guy who he's suspected mm. of being murdered as an old friend. And he, he gets the monks at Canterbury to whip him. You know, they're, they're allowed to whip the king. And I think that must have been such a mm. moment when the king's like, just, just whack my back with a birch branch. And all these monks, monks are like, are you sure? <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if hitting the king is a very good idea. But, you know, this happens. And then we're told that that night as he's praying to Thomas Becket the King of Scotland is captured at, at Annie and, and the rebellion against Henry falls apart and the masterstroke there is that all of medieval society can only see one thing happening there that's God at work God and St Thomas have just forgiven Henry II mm. so now he's got this this man that he's yeah. suspected of having murdered who has been sainted almost immediately and is held up as this this great martyr in all of Western Europe for centuries to follow is now on Henry's side he's now backing mm. Henry God and St Thomas <laughs> love Henry II I mean it's the ultimate propaganda stroke mm -hmm. to, to take all of that that was working against you and to, to be able to turn it to your favour in an instant and so you know I think that moment that period of a few years around Thomas's death is when Thomas is important to Henry's story either side of that I think he's much less important than than history has normally allowed him to be yeah I mean the, the... I think in the modern age, we tend to think that medieval rulers and others uh, didn't understand the value of uh, publicity and uh, organising things, shall we say, as, as you've indicated. But they did because they were clever mm -hmm. and cunning and <laughs> they worked things out. 
that, that's it. I mean, you know, we tend to to still view them as quite. I, th- I think we view them sometimes as stupid. We think we're so much cleverer than people were back then. Mm. But people like Henry yeah. II absolutely understood the world that they lived in. Yeah. In a way that if we went back to 1170, we probably wouldn't have a clue no. what was going on. We wouldn't know how to to reach people, talk to people, communicate yeah. ideas and messages. Mm. You know that they would see a piece of artwork. You know they would see a, a painting on a church wall that we can't we don't see very much of today and they would understand exactly what that's telling them Mm. yeah they would be able to pick out so many details from that and understand all of those messages that are in there Mm. whereas we go i don't know it's it's a guy in a garden with an apple yeah it's not a very good picture is it (laughs) yeah doesn't even look much like a man no quite yeah but but they would see so much in that that we don't so yeah i think there's a danger in viewing them as, as somehow intellectually inferior to us they operated in a different world but they understood that world every bit as well as as people understand this world today yeah i've always had this suspicion that henry ii probably had something like adhd or something just because he was always so active you know he didn't he was they said king john didn't spend too much time in the same place but henry ii was always on the move and you wonder whether that's where john gets it from you know they are very similar in that way that they are forever charging around i think john's problem was that he just didn't have as much space to charge around as henry (laughs) did because he's only got england to to belt around but you you know you see it with stephen a little bit as well during the anarchy Mm. and you see it with henry ii that people are utterly shocked with the speed at which they arrive at places and the speed at which they do things they that they reduce you know said henry gets his reputation for reducing castles by siege in a matter of a couple of days when people think it'll take him weeks if not months to do it and you have to wonder you know is he just like you say that kind of adhd element to his personality where he is literally like charging there sort that out charge over there and sort that out mm-hmm. you know he doesn't want to stay anywhere and focus his attention for very long on anything. Maybe because he's got so much going on, yeah. but also that's why he has someone like mm. Thomas Beckett to do yes. all of that that work for him that requires the focus and the attention to detail because what he wants to do is tear off over there. Mm. And it's either hunting or reducing a castle or you know chasing down a new right that he wants to get. And it's kind of, you do see him jumping from you know one thing to another quite quickly. And that's where Thomas Beckett probably compliments him as chancellor because he's willing to do that kind of... Mm. The, the long haul work that Henry isn't interested in. Mm. And it worked well, though. So with all that in mind, do you think Henry II was a successful king? Yes. I mean, in, in almost every way possible. I think just the amount of, of territory that he controls is impressive. No one will come close to, to holding that much territory in Western Europe for a very, very long time. And he does it incredibly well. Yes, he's chasing down kind of sporadic rebellions all over the place, but so is everybody else with much smaller holdings than he is. I think part of his success is that he avoids this idea of empire in the the kind of Roman model or perhaps even the, the Holy Roman Empire model in that all of those territories are allowed to keep their own kind of laws and culture mm. and customs. You know, In England, we remember him as creating the common law, but he doesn't try and spread that across Normandy and Anjou and into Aquitaine and all of that kind of thing. He's perfectly happy for them to, to maintain their own customs and cultures. And I think that makes it much easier for them to swallow Henry's rule because he's not trying to change them. So I think by avoiding that idea of empire he's able to maintain control over all of those lands very well. I think perhaps his his biggest failing, maybe his only failing, is the worst one that he could possibly have, and that's in his legacy. You know, he he simply doesn't manage his relationships with his sons effectively or efficiently. I think that that thing with Eleanor is about counteracting Louis's efforts to get in between them, but, you know, Louis doesn't stop. Mm -hmm. And having played that card uh, and made Eleanor the scapegoat, they can only do that once. Uh, And Louis doesn't stop. And I don't think he ever finds a way to to really counteract that, either from Louis or then from Louis's son, Philip Augustus, who will carry on playing the same game with with Henry's sons, really. I mean, I think Henry must have been so frustrated with his sons that, like I said before, you know, that that they couldn't see what was being done to them, the way that they were being used. But nevertheless, you know, he he doesn't manage to to get through to them. He ends up being chased to death by his own son, Richard. Um, John is probably the worst king England has ever had. You know, nobody has has a good word to say for john (laughs) richard you know although that that whiggish kind of 19th century view of history will hold richard up as some kind of hero 
probably wasn't a great king for for England mm. really you know de- you know in medieval terms a crusading warrior king hero great but left so many problems that then John would inherit and and exacerbate by his rubbish personality and the fact that he was an idiot um but i guess against that you also have to balance the fact that the plantagenet dynasty is the longest reigning dynasty in english history you know they take henry's family name and they make it last for 334 Mm -hmm. years you know they are ultimately incredibly successful despite his sons so i mean you know i hate to think what they might have achieved if he'd managed to to keep his sons on side a little bit better than he did yeah, I mean, it's uh, we, we, when we were talking to to Michael Jones about the Black Prince. Obviously, there there is a kind of parallel of Edward III having lots of sons as well. And and we put forward that we, we agreed on the theory that if the Black Prince had become king, those brothers he had would have been a force of support for him. Yet in Henry the the Second's reign, you don't get that sense at all that the brothers would have supported each other particularly. Any of them, really. Well, I mean, you know, out of the four of them, two of them die before Henry II does. Um, Henry the Young King frequently rebels. Geoffrey is, you know, called by some of the chroniclers the son of perdition. And, you know, he's seen as as the one who is frequently driving the splits between them. And then you get, say, you know, Richard effectively hunts his father down into his grave. Uh, And then when Richard is king, John does everything that he possibly can to destroy (laughs) Richard's kingship in an effort to get something for himself Mm. uh they 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 are are not working together in a way that might have seen an angevin empire last Mm. for for generations across much of western europe yeah Yeah, and john of course is egged on by philip of france to actually cause richard trouble yeah so you know philip philip augustus is there playing (laughs) still playing his dad's game still playing the same old thing and it works again and again and again and again which utterly amazes me that that Henry the second sons never seem to learn mm. no and I mean that the scope was there in, in Edward the third's reign for them to fall out because you've got uh, Henry of Lancaster taking the, the throne of Castile or going for that and uh, there was there was scope there if they were going to fall out and there was also a king of France that was you know, keen to to disrupt english uh english plans but yeah it, it's about the characters i think mm. yeah i think it is but i also think that if you see what louis and philip augustus do to to henry and his sons it really sets a tone for western european politics for, for centuries that follow mm-hmm. you know by the time we get to the the 19th century we still have this rivalry between england and france which seems to stem from because the King of England at the time had so many holdings on the continent, that they are natural rivals. And it's almost that the way that Louis and Philip mm. tried to get between Henry and his sons and work against the King of England and then get between Richard and John kind of sets the tone for centuries of, of Western European politics to follow. It sets that relationship between England and France right up to mm. the last century, probably. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even in the 18th century with the Seven Years' War, you've got them playing out that dispute across the planet really in different areas of, of geographical areas yeah and the peninsula war with napoleon as well <laughs> it's not until I, I wonder if um the crimean was the first time they were on the same side <laughs> but were they really on the same side <laughs> <laughs> was, i can't remember which one it was um, it, was... it might have been ragged one of the older generals yeah. actually still thought he Allegedly, was fighting the french yeah. even though he was fighting the russians <laughs> and he actually called the enemy Abbott. the french okay so you've done this dual biography in a sense as you presented it to start with you can't really do one without the other so having studied the pair of them do you have a do you have a favorite out of the two do you do you find one or another of them either as an individual or or perhaps as as a subject of study and the answer might not be the same for the two but how do you which do you prefer i suppose is what i'm saying i feel like you're you're taking the louis the seventh role here now aren't you you're trying to pick, maybe pick a favorite <laughs> <laughs> trying to get between me yeah. and eleanor and henry um yeah absolutely i mean i think <laughs> they are both you know massive characters with hugely impressive lives and hugely impressive achievements Henry could have been a very significant French vassal and he could have lived out a fairly comfortable life as Duke of Normandy and Count of Anjou and not really done too much Mm. else. But he crafted for himself that kind of 
role as the premier political power in Europe by the end of his reign. And that's down to his, his drive and his hard work and also, I guess, his partnership with, with Eleanor, absolutely. And I think in terms of a, a person to study, I think he's fascinating because you look at the way that he builds up his power and authority and the way that he maintains it and the and the way that he avoids that idea of enforcing empire because it's, it probably seems like the easy thing to do to take the the laws and customs that you know and make everybody else adopt them because that that's comfortable for me as a ruler mm. and i think there is yeah. some some incredible political intelligence in not doing that mm. so i think the way that he operates is very impressive fairly unique for the period i think and that makes him a an interesting person to study but eleanor just has to edge it i mean in any conversation eleanor of aquitaine will always edge it <laughs> But I, th- I think the thing that strikes me most about her is that I-, I think she lives effectively three hugely impressive medieval lives. As Queen of France, who goes on crusade to the mm. Holy Land, you know, as Louis VII's wife. Then as Queen of England, who puts together this huge Andrewan territory and, and operates as regent and, and builds this, this set of lands. Probably no surprise that, or no coincidence, that it's within months of her death that England begin to really lose all of the Angevin territory. It, it stays together for as long as she's alive. And then she lives this kind of third life after Henry II dies as kind of mother to Richard, where she's charging around to Iberia to pick him up a wife, charging off towards the Holy Land again to make sure he gets married before he goes. <laughs> when he gets captured, you know, she's railing against everybody who is who should be, you know, Richard is a crusader, his land should be protected, and they're not being. She tears around raising this huge ransom for Richard and then she takes it to Germany herself you know in her 70s she's making these huge journeys around everywhere mm. and then even as John's mother you know John becomes king because Eleanor wants it to be so it could have been Arthur the Duke of Brittany really I think Eleanor makes the decision because John is the one who she's closer to Arthur is a bit more you know he, he's probably too close to the French crown so she makes that decision yeah. wrong decision Eleanor I mean it, Crikey, the one thing that she probably gets wrong is picking John. Yeah, but even so, then Arthur besieges her. So she probably thought, well, I did make the right decision. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And when, you know, one of of his few moments of victory, John comes and relieves his mother from the the siege Mm. and captures Arthur, maybe she felt like she'd got it right at that point. But, you know, she lives this three kind of... If if one person had lived any of those lives, it would have been hugely impressive. So for one person to live all three of those lives... Mm. I think just makes Eleanor stand out so much from from all of her peers and from so many of the men of this period too. I think that's why she she attracts so much attention and and focus and admiration. Mm. You know, she was an incredibly impressive person. So f- for me, she's just ahead of Henry. <laughs> You're probably not alone in that conclusion. <laughs> I think that's exactly where she should be. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm on fairly safe ground. Yeah, yeah that's exactly where Eleanor should be, ahead of Henry. <laughs> and I think, like you say, Henry wasn't afraid of strong women, so he probably thought so too. <laughs> I, I think to some extent, you know, in when when she's married to Louis VII, she is viewed as a threat because of that power that she has. I think Henry is the one who is happy to embrace that and to give her free reign to be as impressive as he knows mm. she can be. He's not afraid of that. Mm. So I think you have to give Henry some credit for, for how impressive Eleanor is sometimes. Yeah, totally agree. Well, thank you very much, Matthew Lewis. That was an absolutely fascinating discussion. I do have to mention it is the 22nd of August that we're recording this. <laughs> the 22nd of August is the anniversary of the death of Richard III. So this is probably the only discussion today that Matthew's going to have on anything other than Richard III. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's a big day in a Ricardian calendar, I guess, the 22nd of August. So um, it's quite nice to talk about things that aren't related to the Battle of Bosworth. Thank you very much, Matthew. It's been fabulous. Absolutely lovely to have you on. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure to, to come and talk about two of, two of my favourite people from history to two of my favourite people in history. <laughs> so I've just realised I haven't asked, what are you working on at the minute, if you can say? <laughs> My next book is several things. I'm working on a, a, a second edition of my Survivor of the Prince in the Tower book, which is just updated with some more research and a bit more information um, and things like that. My next book is is kind of a sequel to this. So it's about Richard I's time in captivity. And that kind of felt like the, the natural place to go, having written about Henry and Eleanor, Eleanor's efforts to, to get Richard free. It, it was just to examine his time in captivity, what that meant to him, what that meant for England, what that meant for John, you know, the fallout from all of that, how that 
period has perhaps shaped our view of Richard as a king, mm. perhaps unfairly. I've also got a biography of, of Richard Neville, the Earl of Warwick, the kingmaker lined up for, for a little bit down the line. And I've also, I, I feel like I've been saying this for a very long time because it's been stuck, but I'm kind of 95% of the way through a historical fiction novel about Jack Cage's rebellion, which I'm hoping will be kind of a, an end to uh, a cycle of fictional books about the Wars of the Roses. Oh, I recommend that. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't need to talk to, to anybody else about wonderful <laughs> historical fiction for the Wars of the Roses. Yeah, because given me a lot of mileage, it has. Yeah, it is one of those periods that everybody's always fascinated with, isn't it? The Wars of the Roses. Yeah, I mean, I, I always say that I think anyone who's interested in the Tudors, it, it's simply because they're lazy, because Tudors are easy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's nothing too complicated goes on there. Um, <laughs> if, you want, if you want real complexity... Go to the Wars of the Roses because <laughs> you'll spend your life trying to understand it, yeah. and, and you'll always find something new. Yeah, that's true. To talk about. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was good to talk about this this topic rather than that, but uh, yeah. Yeah, it's been fabulous. Thank you very much, Matthew. And good luck with all that great long list of books you're you're doing. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much. Bye bye. Bye bye. So thank you very much to Matthew Lewis for a fascinating discussion on Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine. Do join us next time when it will be just Derek and myself. We'll be looking into the life and career of Christine de Pizan, the first woman ever to make a career out of writing. Thank you very much for joining today's episode of A Slice of Medieval. I've been Sharon Bennett Connolly. And I'm Derek Burks. If you've enjoyed the podcast... Why not give us a review or a rating and perhaps subscribe so that you don't miss the next one. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.